Hello and welcome to the Write For Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for February has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5 and they really are good. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E fly, and do tell them that you heard all about them here on 5x5. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And today is um, is our um, oh I don't know what the phrase is I was going to say it's our it's our what's the, if it was a a century of podcasts when we had a hundred what is a hundred and fifty cent a century and a half you have you have a <laughs> one point five centuries you have a half century don't you then you have a century yeah what's the there must be there must be some there must be we should have done this we should have looked this up yeah we should have I'm just calling it the big one five zero. Let's do that. It, Let's call it the big one fiver. It feels big to me. It's it's quite nice. So yeah, so 150 episodes. That's that's wow. A lot of talking about. I was going to say nonsense, but I'm going to stick with writing. Yeah, I know. Well, there was quite a lot of nonsense. I know that for a fact because I've been on all of them. <laughs> um, can you remember when you started? How many years has, has the Right for Your Life podcast technically been going in its various guises? Uh, 2009 wow i think i think that's right it started in 2009 and um it was uh quite bitty and bobby um until um episode 32 perhaps and then and then we uh we went to the 70 decibels um young mike hurley going on to fame and fortune he uh he took me on under his wing he was nice and warm in there we used to talk about writing, just the two of us, for about thirty odd episodes. I had some children all at once, and then, um, and then. Uh, I wish you and Mike every happiness for the future. <laughs> that really did. You made that sound like you two had had them. Um, and then we, uh, uh, well, he, I mean, if that's the case, I, well, I need to make a phone call. <laughs> it would be first at first. Well, isn't there an Arnold Schwarzenegger film where he has a baby? This is obviously typical right for your life random tangent I'm taking us on there. Anyway, forget the Arnold Schwarzenegger question. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger was he was a twin, wasn't he? That's another one with Danny DeVito, right? He was yeah, famously uh, uh he was in Twins uh, the film and um but I don't remember him I don't remember one where he was pregnant, but it sounds like something that definitely happened. It does. And this actually links on randomly in my head, which is obviously a very random place of mixed up things. Um, to something that I was going to say. I was going to ask whether I could have a brief non-writing-related rant to start off this week. Does it relate to anything we've talked about in the last three minutes? Yes, it does. But it's Go kind of it. like one of those seven degrees of separation, you know, where if you name, a, you have to name a film star and then a f- who they've acted with and then you, get to, you can get to everyone. But the reason I'm saying that is because Jamie Lee Curtis was the link here and I think she was in that film about Arnold Schwarzenegger being pregnant and having a baby. <laughs> so her link her ridiculous link to the next thing I want to say is is that um it was Oscars week obviously this week um and I was looking at a list of uh, famous um film stars who have never won an Oscar um and Jamie Lee Curtis was one of them and I was not surprised that she'd not won an Oscar but I was thinking about the fact and it is I guess this does slightly relate to writing because there are so many big literary awards as well but I mean, you must just get to the stage when you're a really, really big, famous writer 
or a famous film star. And the real rant that I wanted to have was about restaurants and super chefs, like um, celebrity chefs. When awards come out, like the Michelin stars, you know, they came out this week in um, Scandinavia. And the world's best restaurant, which is in Copenhagen, the head chef is like absolutely groundbreaking. It's the most amazing concept. It's the world's best restaurant three years in a row. And they have not been given three Michelin stars again. That means that some French reviewers are coming up from France and they're sitting there and they've decided that it's not worth travelling for. That's what three stars is, uh, the definition of it is. And you just think... If you if you are Rene Redzepi, who is the the big big chef that that um, does Noma, hang on, did you did you just say his name? That the, the, the one of the best chefs in the world was called Rene Recipe. <laughs> Nearly, I've never ever ever thought about that before. But now he will forever be Rene Recipe. Yes, Rene Recipe. He is. There's a there's a chap in Yorkshire who's a very popular chef called uh, Bobby Hot Pot. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. But you must just think, you know what? There's nothing I can do. I can't I can't do any more than this. And how much does it matter for my life? I'm never going to have a three-starred uh, restaurant. Right now, he's taken the entire restaurant of Noma over to Japan for a, a three-month sabbatical. He's having a whale of a time. But I just kept thinking, big awards and anything that's subjective like this the Oscars, or take Nobel Prize, Booker Prize, whatever. There are going to be some people who will go their entire life every year thinking that they might get one and not getting one. Isn't that an awful thought? It, it, I, it, it could be an awful thought, but it depends how you think about it. I mean, um, we talked last week at length at the end of the episode about um, entrepreneurship and, and, and we talked so many times about... Um, the idea of running your writing career as a business and 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 the idea of um, you know making money being the goal kind of the the measure almost of 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 success now i've learnt one of the things i've learnt to follow on from last week and hopefully to make a relevant point to what you're saying i've learnt to um change my measurements and so um i think not that my measurements ever were in, in a sort of financial, but let's let's say for sake of argument that I'd expected or hoped to have made my money out of my first novel. In reality, it turns out the things that have been way more satisfying than any kind of um, advance or, or or whatever it might be have been individual people saying to me how much they enjoyed the book or whether they, or even if they didn't enjoy the book, just engaging with me about it whether that's through a review or just on Twitter or by email. And and it sounds like it's, it's kind of a, well, that's easy to say kind of kind of thing. But I have really found that to be true. And if, if, if everyone was to measure success by the awards they win or the money they make, then we'd have a lot of unhappy people in the world. Yeah, it's very true. And it is wonderful what you're saying. But I think the reason that I was thinking about this and had this um, this rant just now was that after we were talking about entrepreneurship last week and being very realistic about expectations and hang on a minute, let's let's just talk about the realities of writing. When I, I listened back to the podcast, 
And as we, as I was listening, I realised that actually one thing that keeps me going, and I'm only just really realised it now, is that I do kind of feel that one day I could win, that I, I could be a Booker Prize winner. And I could, you know, I, I still have this ridiculous notion that that I could be the world's most famous writer ever. And I don't even I don't even have an idea for a novel right now. I mean, I'm not even considering writing a novel. But that idea that in my head, I realised, oh, my goodness, I'm one of those people, too, that has that in my head. Um, Donna, have you got your xylophone available? I do. I do. Because this um, this I think that we are segueing like a fat person on a two wheeled contraption into um, our listeners question. What well, our listeners question? Oh, dear. oh my god. <laughs> Listener's question. I just can't get it this week, Ian. Uh, should we try once more? Listener's question. You just needed to tone it down a touch. <laughs> I actually needed to look at the xylophone. That's what I needed to do. <laughs> um, so I think this ties in with the question that uh, uh, we were just asked. At. I, I've made some notes on this, but we've only, we're only recently asked about it, so there isn't a lot of thought going into this but the question that Liz Furl asks and I do believe that Liz was the person to ask the question last week or the week before she's a regular listener we thanks for thanks for asking the questions and listening uh, and Liz uh, and and this is how do you maintain endurance over the course of a big project um, and she she continued with a couple of other uh, uh, tweets but that was the main thing that was the main question and um, one of the things and this is where it comes back to what you're saying that I've written down here is to believe that it will happen, to literally picture the end and hold that image, whatever that might be, hold it tight to your bosom, keep it fresh in your mind and do everything you can to never forget it or to never <laughs> stop believing. <laughs> um, because um, because if you uh, any project that takes some endurance, there will be many times... I think that's kind of the word endurance is is kind of tied up with this. Um, it's the idea that there will be trials and tribulations along the way. And just like you, I still, and I definitely did when I was writing that first novel, imagine myself at the end of it, very happy, very successful, everybody loves my book, and it's top of the bestsellers list, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. Now, one of the problems that I've had, having done that first book, is, of course, that that hasn't happened. <laughs> that hasn't happened. But it but it has. It has happened on lots of smaller levels because my original expectations, they weren't expectations. My, my aspirations were lofty and, you know, hardly anyone reaches those kinds of aspirations. However, I still think it's so important to aim high and really believe um, even when you're finding it really difficult to believe, but really kind of just hold that image tight of yourself picking up the Booker Prize. Because if you haven't got that, what are you aiming for? Yes. So, um, I mean, I would say that you're a, you're a big realist. And you do... <laughs> That's very, very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, so it surprises me to imagine that you... Um, no, actually, I'm gonna no. I'm gonna stop there. It doesn't surprise me um, to hear that you imagine yourself like um, standing in front of the mirror, holding the Booker Prize award, and looking at yourself in the mirror. 
it's, it's good for me to hear that you have that in your head because, I mean, you know, we can't all win the Booker Prize, but we're all aiming for it, if we're honest. I mean, another. I I, I have always been fortunate. Uh, I'm very fortunate, in fact, in 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 my entire life. I won't go into kind of the fact that I'm a male white in a kind of Western country and all that kind of thing. But you know, I've been I've been lucky enough to sort of be reasonably good at, at, at sport, for example. I've been you know I was did reasonably well at school, and you know I've got a a, a job and a family. You know, lots of people don't have those kinds of leg up, um, but. If you if you as soon as self doubt kind of creeps in, it doesn't matter who you who you are really. It can really just transform your your vision, and you, it's that losing sight. And and I can say all this because I've been going through it myself in while writing the second novel. It's like totally it's, it's been a totally different experience. I had such confidence writing the first novel. I, I was sure it would happen, and and eventually it it did to a degree, as I've said, and 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 holding on to that in totally different circumstances with a family all those other things we talk about has has been different and i do forget i totally forget um now that 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 about the mental image about holding it tight all that kind of thing i don't know how you i don't know how you hold a mental image tight to your chest but you know you can try um and and i and it's hard it's really hard to do that but it's so important because as you know i'm basically repeating myself but essentially if you're not aiming for as high as you can dream then why bother aiming at all because you're gonna you know because you barely ever so many people uh, achieve their dreams and if your dreams are kind of somewhere in the middle then you're probably going to achieve slightly less if that makes sense Mm, yeah absolutely um and um i read something this week which i will put in the show notes which will be at five by five dot tv slash wfyl slash one five oh um but um I haven't shared it with you, Ian, to discuss because I don't think we'll discuss it here, but it's relevant. So I'll put it in the show notes. It was a piece about a guy who um, I think he'd written seven books and his last book had virtually sold nothing at all. And it was just uh, titled What Happens When Your Book Doesn't, You Don't Sell Any Copies of Your Book At All. Um, And he was just kind of, you know, assessing what had happened and the reasons why and how it made him feel. And at the end, he said, ultimately, I think it just makes you a better writer because you you realise that you're doing it because you you love writing and you are happy to have created something. Which I think was very interesting because that's kind of the opposite of what we're saying, I guess, really, that, you know, you always have to be creating something with the idea that it's going to be big. What is the definition of big, though, isn't it? So he could he, he could still write something and maybe he's got an audience of 50 people Maybe there are just 50 people who he knows will buy his books because they've bought the previous six. And maybe his measurements have changed so that he is his writing is improving because he is he maybe his measurement is that those 50 people will love his seventh book as much as his fourth book or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I guess, you know, I mean, it would be quite nice to have have sold six books well and the seventh one not to have sold so well. When you're sitting with only one book, it's it's, it's all. Everybody is is at different stages, and I said before on the podcast, my mum complains often about writer's block and things like that, and I just keep saying, Mum, please, thirty books. I don't want to hear that. I really don't want to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's true. I mean, to, let's um, let's try and give some more practical help to uh, to Liz to, to Liz here about maintaining endurance over the course of a big project. <laughs> let's need maintain to... our endurance over the course of this answer. That would be a good start. Yeah, so it's fine just saying, you know, believe it will happen. That's not really very practical advice. So we've talked about this loads of times before, but chunking it up. So mentally, and when I say chunking it up, I, did, I think that does automatically, you just think, all right, okay, well, I better make some sort of physical plan. You should do that too, um, ideally. But I mean mentally, just looking, don't look past the next chapter. Don't look past the next 3,000 words um, and and try and hit those smaller targets. So those short-term targets with like kind of the long-term goal of having a finished novel um and, and try and try and approach it that way and obviously potentially some small treats or rewards in between time hmm. um uh get regular feedback so that's another big big uh problem i think people have when they have a long project is that they it's very easy to just go it alone you might start off with maybe you have a, a writing group or maybe you have like a, a writing partner, a critique partner of some kind. And then it gets, you know, it gets to a few months and maybe you don't meet up as much. And all of a sudden you're on your you're on your own. And it's really hard to motivate yourself to keep going when no one is there commenting on what you're producing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but then you can, I guess you can also get demoralized sometimes from feedback. I guess you just have to steel yourself and be ready for that, you know, that you might get feedback on a piece that you hadn't expected that will make you question other parts of what you've written as well. Yeah, quite possibly, but it's it's the case of choosing the right people to share your work with, I suppose. Mm. Um, what would you say to um, to choosing or or sitting down to write bits that you, like tough bits that you're struggling with, just putting them to one side and, and just doing bits that you are, you know, enjoying writing or that you feel a bit more motivated to do at that particular time. This is chomping on the low-hanging fruit again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I've just, I've often done that with poems where I've, I've, if something, and it's not a long project, but it is like about endurance, I think you could apply it in the same way to writing longer pieces of fiction. That I mean, there must be times when you're just like, there's a, there's a particular chapter or a scene or whatever where you're just like oh no I just I, I don't want to have to face that right now and that's what's holding you back from actually getting on I guess so there are just sometimes cases where you just have to um, face it and um, and get stuck in but I do tend to be the sort of writer who puts things off I have to admit <laughs> but yeah you just have to get to a point where you just just do it just sort of kind of get stuck in but um yeah it's a tricky one mm. you're talking about social accountability as well making sure that as many people as possible know that you're doing it so that you you are held accountable and you have to actually write something yeah again it's that's kind of a, a tricky one but I, th I think as soon as you announce to people that you are working on something anything really um every time you don't do that then you feel guilt and um and actually that can be it can have two sides so i i i, I sometimes do find it quite difficult because i know that i'm not able to kind of fulfill the fulfill the things that i said i would fulfill and um and it can be quite difficult so um i guess the point is that if you are going to announce that you're working on i don't know a short story collection for example then make sure that you are likely to actually do it but once you have said that there is some real motivating 
elements to the fact that you don't want to let people down and sometimes that guilt can work in your favour and you can find yourself motivated to to make sure that you don't let people down. I guess that's this really comes down to what kind of writer you are but the, a lot of people that I know that have surprised me was oh yeah they've just got a book deal or they finished a manuscript are people that are doing exactly the opposite they are just tucking themselves away in a dark spot with a screen to write on and they are writing without really telling anybody that they're doing it and I think that's given them some kind of freedom just to say you know what I'm not going to let anybody down by doing this and for them that is more motivating than than actually saying I'm doing this and I can totally appreciate that I think if I was you know ready to start on on a big new novel I'd probably just want to just just tuck myself away and get on with it and then tell people about it when I either when it was finished or when it was a lot further down the line you know yeah I think that's a really good point and really a very good argument for uh for not shouting about what you're up to Hmm. and um it's quite hard once you've had a book out though to do that but I realized that you know yeah but that I mean that's that's that isn't that quite a typical thing that writers on their second books feel that that pressure I can imagine if you were to look at the statistics second books probably take longer to write than first ones don't you think um I I don't know where we would get hold of those statistics but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case Mm, yeah um the next point to mention on this about deadlines using writing groups and things like that I think is is a really great idea in terms of endurance um a regular because it's not so much about social accountability this it's just actually having somewhere that you need to show up it doesn't really matter you know if you get feedback on it or whatever just the fact that you're you're going to go and you're expected to read something means that you're going to write something doesn't it it does if you if you've kind of arranged with a group that this month you're the one that's going to be reading a portion of your work and uh, you're going to be getting feedback from it that is a deadline that is a commitment that you've made it's an actual time and place that you need to have got something prepared for and um and the really i mean there really is no better um motivation um and and that doesn't have to be a writing group it could it could be like a, a critique partner that you have over the internet for example and you could have said right okay well um, maybe your partner is going on a holiday or, or maybe they're not maybe it's just a regular week but they've said you know this is when I'm available to critique your work I've got a couple of days and I've got you know um, um, a few hours that I am you know I'm, I'm available I can I can check your work and I want to and then you kind of have to do that you know you've made a a, a pact with someone that, that something will happen and of course then you return the favor and when you return the favor you know what it's like potentially for someone to let you down the opposite way and you just kind of make this this kind of agreements that you will have had something done by a specific time and to be quite honest with you I think that I really missed deadlines i think it's high time someone just gave me one but gave me one that was i couldn't really um miss because i don't have that i don't have that i don't have it anymore i used to because i did my a lot of my writing through the masters and then i had an agent waiting for my book and uh they turned out they didn't like it but that's another matter but you know i had someone and that was a motivating factor and you know those real world physical deadlines helped enormously i mean this is not about, any kind of if re- i was to say to you ian that you are soon to be moving house are you not in two weeks potentially so what about if i was to tell you that i want to see the first two chapters of your next novel in my inbox before you move house 
I think if I had someone saying that to me, and you may be right now, I'm not quite sure how serious you are. <laughs> In two weeks, I will be officially on maternity leave, and I will um, and I will receive those two chapters, and I will read them. It does seem a bit strange that we are um, uh, not by blood, not by blood, but we are family, and uh, we are both writers, and we both complain on a podcast on a regular basis, and we've never actually shared each other's shared work with each other. Yeah, I know. It is. It is funny. I mean, I haven't been. I haven't really had work that I felt I wanted to share for a while. But I mean, for example, a writer I know has sent me a short story today that he's about to submit to a competition. It's fantastic to ask me what he thinks, and it's. I just. I do enjoy that, you know, when I have a chance. But I, sitting here listening to you, I'm like, well, why on earth don't you just... You're moving in two weeks. That's a massive thing. You, after that, you are going to be, you know, boxes coming out of your ears. Or that's not really possible, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, do it. And, and, I, and, and I will be your person telling you to send it to me. We should all be doing this for each other. We should all be doing it for... Well, people are all around the world. Aye, 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 aye. <laughs> They're... Um, they're doing that. That's an obscure reference, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I will. But you must, and then, well, ha- I mean, would you be able to manage two chapters in the next two weeks? Um, yes, partly because I've got quite a lot of that already written. <laughs> oh, you. That's okay. That's cheating. Well, now I'm going to say three, and we can report back on the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. Anyway, I'm not sure whether we've helped Liz there or not, but hopefully we have. Yes. I think we've helped ourselves more than anything. <laughs> and, and, and that's the main thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, should, we do, should we do another listener's question? Should we break convention? Let's do it. We're just, this, it's so exciting to have so many. We're going to do another listener's question. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right, so now I've got a di- another dilemma. So basically every time you've played xylophone so far, which has been four times now, <laughs> yeah. you've, you've done it so much louder than every other sound you've made okay. that um, it's kind of exploded. Your it's ears. exploded the audio system. Right. I'm going to try one last time. This time I'm going to look at the xylophone instead of looking at the listener's question on the screen, which is what I was doing. Listener's question. If there's anyone that's listened to the last 75 or so episodes of, uh, or how, it might, might not be that many, 50 episodes of this podcast, and they love it, they love listening to this podcast, it's it's their favourite writing, publishing publishing and reading based catch-up of the week, but they, 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 they just hate that bit with the xylophone, oh. they're going to hate this episode. Oh, don't. How many people could hate that? No one could hate it. <laughs> it I'm talking about a mythical person, someone who might exist. <laughs> Well, people have been opposed to Stranger Things than terrible xylophone playing, so yes, probably there are a couple that will no longer listen. Anyway, Grace, we're going to answer your question. Grace McCarter at... Ooh, the bento buff. Thank you very much for sending us a question. Um, When you're rusty, what is the best resource for brushing up on good grammar practices? Do you... uh, Well, you're a copywriter. Don't, um... no, don't put this on me. (laughs) (laughs) i looked at that question i was like oh yeah good question i would like to know (laughs) oh okay right well so what's the best resource for brushing up on good grammar practices um well i've written down a couple of things first of all i think if you're if if it's your job as it is mine um then kind of good grammar practices should come relatively naturally 
Um, and I, and I know I've talked recently about on the podcast about it being like a almost like a mechanical process. So there are some elements of writing where it just it's like putting a jigsaw together, and that's kind of how I think about good grammar practices. Mostly, um, it's just it's just kind of how I I don't know. Do I sound like a jerk by saying it just comes naturally? No, because you've already said that you're quite good at sports this episode. So no, I don't. <laughs> That's not true. Yes, I said I thought I, I said I, I thought I said I was quite good at sports. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, as, in, as in as in past tense. Yeah. I was yeah, oh, jeepers, you're right. No, it's it's great. So yeah, you're good at sports and also really good at grammar. But how can I other know. people be good at grammar, Ian? <laughs> I just don't see how they would be as good. <laughs> um no, go on, carry on. It's good. I want to know, as I said. Like, I mean, I, when, I, when I'm writing, I, all that stuff you just said, it comes naturally. It's, it's when you're, you're sitting there and something doesn't come naturally that you're just like, oh, hang on a minute. That doesn't seem right. And then you need to go somewhere and you need to look it up. Where do you go? If there's a specific example, then I would just probably Google it. So ah, I would... Ah, yes. If, if it was a case of should I use learnt or learned then I would probably Google something like that. Or if it was something as straightforward, you would imagine as orientated or oriented, I would probably Google that or maybe give you a ring. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and usually the website that will come up and you're the first two or three um, uh, um, entries in Google or a search engine of your choice is Grammar Girl. And, um, and that's a very good site that covers pretty much every topic imaginable uh, related to grammar is written in a kind of friendly way it's quite us centric i think um because it's a us based person who writes it but that's fine mostly it's mostly it kind of does say um this is uk version this is um or kind of proper english version i don't know how to say that politely you know what i mean um the third the third thing to do and this is by far the most exciting thing to do is to do what we've said previously and create your own star guide. So um, the company I, I currently work for, they didn't have a star guide when I started there. And the first thing I did was put a star guide together for them. And I've got a, a template for this and a way of doing this that I've picked up over the years. And and it's extremely useful. So rather than kind of Googling absolutely everything, I can refer to a star guide where it has a list of how in the case of the company, how we write specific words or how we handle specific grammar challenges. Um, so you may have a policy on how on, on list styles, on how lists should be written. Um, and and you, that would be in the star guide. You wouldn't have to think about it every single time you wrote it. I uh, wrote a list. You would just go, okay, well, that's I'll refer to the star guide. And of course, once you're doing it regularly, like I say, this is the bit where I accidentally show it off. But this is where it becomes natural because you just, those grammar problems and practices they just become things that you have tackled previously a number of times so they just become ingrained in your bunts and you just know them absolutely um yeah i totally agree gathering your own examples of how you were going to do things in the future it sounds really simple and obvious but it's it's so vital i mean i take the word fairy tale for example i remember at this when i first started the job i'm in right now trying to get my head around about how, this is so many different ways to use that bloomin' word. It's ridiculous, you know. Just say, this is how we're going to use it. And if, if there are words like that, then you need to you need to have written it down because you're going to come back to it a few years later and be like, mm, what did I say? 
it's 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 true and and not even um you know a few years later that can be how long it takes you to write a novel so again we've talked about this recent uh, recently or fairly recently but you could have a star guide for your creative writing it doesn't just have to be kind of a copywriting kind of um, um marketing type affair it could be something that you use to keep a track of place names or character names or dates or how you write dates or how you write um i don't know perhaps it's um perhaps your novel is set in a different country and there are certain terms and phrases that you want to keep using and you don't want to get them wrong of course so you maybe write them down in some kind of guide that you can refer to as you're working i mean it's it's um it's a, a really flexible thing i should i should probably do something with the template that i have at some point absolutely but it's good to hear that you uh, google because when i do that all the time and i think oh maybe that's i mean you 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 take the first you know whatever comes up first in google but it, i mean you're not always guaranteed to get grammar girl you know i mean i don't think i've ever come across it just on random searches um maybe that's i don't know why but um but so it is good it is good to know that it's sometimes it's just a quick fix of doing a quick search for whatever you need at that time and there's also stuff that you don't necessarily need to know that well in order to be like a, a working writer. So even though I did a linguistics or a third, my degree was a third linguistics, um, and even though I've been copywriting for like over a decade, I sometimes don't entirely know what my, you know, the difference between a, a you know, some a, a pronoun and a and a something or other verb you know <laughs> I, if, if you start to get if you start to get technical on my ass then um yeah. I, I i can sometimes get a bit lost but if you just give me a piece of writing i can have that you know ship shape in no time that's very interesting and i wonder whether our american listeners um would relate to what we're saying about this but you and i ian we grew up we were school children of the 80s were we not um, I was until um, uh, nineteen ninety, and then for the remaining seven years, I was a school child of the nineties. We were school children of the eighties and seven years of the nineties, and grammar was not a focus at all in our education. It just it, it wasn't a focus back then at all. I don't remember learning any really anything that helped me at all with my grammar, and um, I trained later on to be a teacher and went back to it and. It's, you know, everybody says it. With your own language, you just kind of do it without thinking about it. But I still sometimes am a little bit, if people say, you know, like when my sister, for example, keeps throwing words like that at me, sometimes I'm a little bit like, oh, it's just like a reflex. Like, I didn't grow up using the words. I just grew up using them on paper, if you get what I mean. I didn't grow up using the term for them. Um, and But we all know how to do it. We all do know how to do it. You just, there's the old thing you need to check every so often. If in doubt, I refer to the massive, ma the massive attack song "Teardrop," in which they say that love, love, yeah, love's a doing word. It's a busy doing word, but it's also a noun. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that's great. I hope that's 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 been useful. Um, we're going to finish up this week by chatting about chapters, a chapter chat. <laughs> a chapter chat. I like that. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, this is a this is a, I, I I link to this in my newsletter, which I would encourage anyone interested in writing or publishing to um, sign up to at ianbroom dot com slash mailing hyphen list. 
Um, it's a it's a piece about chapters, and it's called the Art of the Chapter, and it's it kind of it it it's kind of looking at a number of examples, actually, not all of which I've read, but just the way that chapters can really define the tone of of a book, and I guess how some chapter structures can be quite frustrating, um, how others are, like for instance Dan Brown, they're specifically um, short um, because. I'll, let me see if I can find the quote. Here we are. A more. Uh, this is me quoting from this uh, piece. I'll, let me find who it's by. It's by Jonathan Russell Clark, and it's on on the website The Millions. It'll be in the show notes. Um, here he says, a more crass version of the chapter's utility can be plainly seen in the novel, for example, the novels of Dan Brown, in which the chapters are so short, in brackets, and the pagination designed just so in order to create as many pages with only a few lines on them as possible, which I didn't realise, that a reader is goaded into thinking they're moving through the book super quick. Um, and, nonsense. And Nonsense. I, I believe that's absolute nonsense. I think it's, it's, it's typical literary critic here, um, panning Dan Brown. But let's be honest, uh, with Dan Brown's chapters, they were being short. Readers weren't goaded into thinking they were getting through the book quickly. Readers demolished those books, Dan Brown books. It's, 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 you know, that's the way it is. That was the pace of the writing. That was the way it's set up. They're not tricked into thinking they're reading it quickly. Everybody did read it pretty quickly. I am quite a fan of short chapters. I'm not, I'm not going to defend Dan Brown here, but I am just going to say that um, I don't think it was a, as a sensation of going through a book quickly that that was meant done to create. It was actually to get people through the book quickly. Well, I have no particular opinion either way on that because I haven't read it. But Have you not um, read um, the, the Da Vinci Code? No, it was pretty awful. Oh, I read the first... <laughs> I was going to say, how do you know if you haven't read it? I read the first, uh, I, I did think, I remember at the time, uh, shortly kind of towards the end of the furore, you know, the huge publishing sensation that it was at the time, and, you know, still is, but when it was happening, you know, obviously I didn't read it, what with being from the cool school, but um, uh, I, I, I thought I'd give it a go, but then, because I felt like I should, and then I just, it was, you know, I found it fairly unbearable. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Anyway, carry on, because, I mean, it's just when you read this article, it's very interesting to me. Sometimes I read things like this and I think, OK, this is somebody who is a literary cr- critic and they're listing books here that, you know, I'm never going to read ever in my entire life. Absolutely billions of people around the world have read Dan Brown. So it's interesting that you're annoyed by Dan Brown's chapter structure and you think that, you know, it's much better when you're using kind of obscure you know words in certain orders, which you have to, like, go back and re it does get a little bit like that in this article, don't you think? It does a bit, but just to just to clarify, you, you're not saying that I that I was particularly panning Dan Brown there. I was no, quoting. No, I haven't read him. It's fine. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, it's just. I guess I like the idea, and you're you're going to obviously talk more about this article. I like the idea that chapters are used in in interesting and unique ways to to frame how a book is set out, but sometimes I think it doesn't need to be too clever. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit, you know, you just want to hear chapter 26. I, I completely agree. And um, I, I actually think that um, short chapters are great. So it was just the example that I 
came to first. There were some other examples here. Ali Smith's their book for the, which was the book I was trying to think of last week. Us. Yeah, you've read that then. That's the one you've read. That's the one I've read. Uh-huh. Um, the structure of that is really interesting. So the, the title is called Their Book for the, and it's the book is split into four parts, and each one is one of those words. There's part one is there, then but for the, um, and it ties in with the theme of the book. And and I think the, the kind of the bit of the writing advice area here is um, is how important having an idea of your chapter structure. I think can be for. Um, helping you write um, and and in reading this article which was you know it was a bit of a it is a bit of a snooty article I agree with you mm. um, um, although I do think it's interesting the kind of the, the topic and how you know the idea that chapters and the way that they're structured can shape an entire the feel the kind of the feel the aesthetic of a novel definitely um, I agree yeah but in terms of in terms of writing I wrote my, my first novel was, um, I've talked about this before, I think I've said that phrase about 20 times this episode, but I, I um, it was going to be the alphabet. So my chapters, first one is Angelica, then it goes Benny, and then on and on through to Z. And I had this concept right up until the book was actually written. It was only in my second draft that I extended it, but originally I, I had 26 chapters. And, you know, it was a real conceit. And when I got to the point of doing the second draft I realised that it was really a hindrance and I'd kind of ruined the pace of it by trying to squeeze it into 26 chapters however, having that structure did allow me to sort of put pieces of the puzzle into place and um, and, and kind of it added to the tone of the piece, the tone of the book and I think that if uh, I think I, I guess what, I, what my advice is that I, I would recommend thinking about your chapter type and how you might structure them sort of average kind of length or whether they are or even maybe the decision is that they will be some long and some really short and some you know maybe they're just numbered or maybe they have you know catchy titles but to have some sort of idea of that before you start I think is or or fairly soonish in um, I think can really help you kind of keep momentum because it gives you an idea of what you're aiming for and what you're what your overall, I don't know, aesthetic is, I guess. Yeah. Also, I think it's, you know, I mean, we've all... Those are the two words, Ian. I was just saying, I say them too much on the podcast. I'm not going to say them ever again. You know, and I mean. Um, we've all read lots of books and ones that are split up in different ways. I think the thing I was trying to say there about simple chapters is sometimes you... It's, it's nice to know as a reader where the book is going and an easy chapter structure to work out and the pacing and all that kind of stuff. It just, just really, really helps. And then you can con- concentrate on the story. I mean, it's, you, you obviously read books where you just think, okay, I have no idea what's, what's just happened in, in the last chapter. Like there's so many different things that happen. And other books where you think there's like a really easy progression through this chapter. And I know that something else is going to happen in the next one now because this chapter's finished. And I just think, I really like the idea of very, very simple chapters. Me too. I am, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Because something there are other examples in this article, for example, um, Eleanor Catton's Man Booker Prize winner from, was it last year? I think it was, yeah, The Luminaries, which I had read was based on the signs of the Zodiac and it was split up that way. be really interested to see how that worked because that's such a long book. Isn't it the longest ever Booker Prize winner, I think? 
Yeah, I think it's. I don't. There is some logic to it, but I think that the first chapter, the first chapter or the first part is really short, and the last one is huge, like hundreds of pages long. Yeah. Uh, they get they get progressively larger. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Um, I think it's a good topic, and it's something that everybody will approach differently. Absolutely. And and of course, as we come to the end of this show, it'd be remiss of us not to invite. Uh, everyone listening to tell us how do you look at chapters how do you structure your books share your thoughts tell us what you think mm. yes is there ever a time when you should just give a chapter a number and not a name i mean some chapters don't even have chapter written do they you just can tell by the fact that it stopped on one page and started on another yep or some just carry on start to finish with nothing at all to separate anything oh yeah it'd be interesting to see if we could remember I think the road. We, we mentioned the road last week. Cormac McCarthy. The road is. I don't think there are chapters in that, and it's lots of individual paragraphs almost. Oh, interesting. I have to go back and have a look. Mm. Cool. Well, thank you, Ian. Um, I will let everybody know that you can find me on Twitter at the Flying Poet, and of course on the Right for Your Life hashtag WFYL. I'll be there too, as well as at Ian Broom. I A I N B R O O M E. Super duper. Um, I had a little travel article that came out in a little new online magazine this week. I'm going to whack that in the show notes for everybody as well. Marvellous and more the merrier. Of course, if you want to listen to previous shows, you can go to 5x5.tv slash WFYL. You'll be able to see all 149 previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And we'll see everybody next week. <laughs>